0: Good afternoon to each and every one of you. I hope that you have had a good afternoon. Maybe you were even able to sneak in a short little nap between lunch and coming back in here uh, this afternoon. Thank you for being here. I hope that you have been encouraged by our songs that we have sung together over the last few minutes. I appreciate our brother leading songs that really tie in very well with the lesson that we are going to consider this afternoon from the life of King David. I want to begin though in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 and, and read what Paul says about David here within this text as he is in Antioch of Pisidia. If someone has never read or they never heard about King David... They're going to think a lot about him from this text, and we're going to begin here as our jumping off point, Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 16, Acts 13, verse 16. If you are a member here, again, thank you for being here, especially if you're a guest, if you're from another local congregation, or maybe you're just from the community, I especially thank you for being here, taking the time to be with this group of God's people. I know that you encourage them, and I hope that you're encouraged, and if you have any questions about the church here at Rolling Hills, I know there are people that would love to sit down and talk with you about that. Acts 13, beginning in verse 13. Acts 13 and verse 13. Paul and his companions had set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and went back to Jerusalem, and they continued their journey from Perga and reached Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. Them offering the opportunity for Paul to speak, we know Paul is going to take that opportunity. So Paul stands up and he motions with his hand and he says, Fellow Israelites and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt, and led them out of it with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years, and after this he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man in the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after removing him, he raised up David as their king. And he testified about him, I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart, who will carry out all my will. And from this man's descendants, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. Paul's standard mode of operation, as we're familiar with from reading through the book of Acts, was for him to go into a new town and to go straight to where the people were, particularly the religious people. If there there was a Jewish population, he would go to the synagogues and he might sit down and reason with the people normally on the Sabbath day. And here he has the opportunity to stand up and to give a word of encouragement. And he does so in this instance by giving a very short and condensed version of Israel's History. He speaks of God choosing their ancestors to come out of the land of Egypt. He speaks of the wilderness wanderings. He talks about God's, God's dest- dest- destruction of the Canaanite people. He speaks about the judges and the prophets. He speaks about kings, Saul, and David. He only gives a very short word about Saul. But then he spends a good bit of time talking about David. And in fact, David's the last king that he mentions by name. And he mentions about David that, yes, it was his descendants through whom the Savior would come, but David himself was very special, for he was, as he quotes from 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14, a man after God's own heart. Someone who is not familiar with the story of David Who hears only what Saul, or excuse me, what Paul says here within Acts 13. They're thinking, they're hearing about this man and thinking, this guy is spectacular. This guy must be truly someone extraordinarily special. Who is this man, David? I want to know a little more about him. And as they go digging throughout the Old Testament about what took place within David's life, especially as king of Israel, they would find a very impressive resume. An extremely impressive resume, a resume full of, of great successes and triumphs. Here's just a few of the highlights that we can find within David's life. He was anointed the next king of Israel, even though he was the youngest within his family. He follows this up by being the only Israelite who's willing to stand before Goliath and, and take on this blasphemer of his God. He not only stands up to him, but he defeats him, cutting off his head. After the death of Saul and his installment as king, David does a number of great and mighty acts. He takes back Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 5. He brings the ark, of, uh, he brings the ark to Jerusalem, 2nd, 1 Chronicles 15. And he has numerous, numerous victories over the enemies of Israel. And while all this is going on, what we find is that God establishes through David and his lineage an eternal throne. A throne that was spoken of there in Acts chapter 13, that it was through, Is- through David, through his bloodline, that the eternal king would be established. And you, you read just these cliff notes of David's life and you're thinking, wow, what a man. What an impressive individual. And yet we know that each coin has two sides. It would be wonderful. I'm sure David would love for his life to only consist of these highlights, but we know that David's life also included some missteps and shortcomings. He has some difficulties and some failures. Here are a few of those low lights, we might call them. We know that David had difficulties with Saul. That Saul was very jealous of David and his being anointing as king, and Saul pursued him to even try to kill him. We see this throughout uh, the book of 1 Samuel, those latter chapters. We know that David's children had issues, that his son Amnon violates his sister Tamar, and then David doesn't seek retribution, and because of that, his other son Absalom takes out vengeance against Amnon for that sin. And Absalom being overcome by what has taken place within his family his, and his father not doing what he felt he ought to do, he leads a rebellion against David and, and this nearly splits the kingdom and it ends with, with Absalom's death. David in 2 Samuel 24 and First Chronicles 21, he takes an unauthorized census which results in a great plague going through the Israelite people that causes much harm and even death. And then we know sadly from 2 Chronicles 22 and verse 8 that David is not allowed to be the king who builds the the physical structural house for God because as that text says, he had shed much blood and he had waged many wars. It could be that as David or as God tells David that you have shed all this blood, that you've waged too many wars, that he's speaking of of one and the same thing, Or, or it could be That David's mistakes that led to the shedding of blood was also standing in the way of him being able to, to erect this glorious house for God. Yes, it was that David was a mighty warrior. And yes, it was that he had many, many great victories against the enemies of God. But it wasn't just that he shed the blood of enemies of God. He was also involved in the shedding of Innocent blood. It was David's inaction against Amnon which led to Absalom killing him and all the death and the chaos that ensued from that. And yet, we would say that probably still is not the lowest of low points within David's life. That low point would probably rest in the situation that took place between him and Bathsheba. This particular chapter of David's life, a very dark chapter that we find in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, this this horrible portion of David's life might leave us with many questions. We might be wondering, well, how does a man like this get caught up in lust and adultery, deception, murder, and even death of innocent people? How does this man, this godly man, this man that is praised by, by Paul in Acts 13, this man that is said even to be a man after God's own heart, how does this man fail? How could he fail? Of all the people who could fail, how could he Be involved in such a thing. A a story that even the midday soap opera writers would have a hard time putting together with all the various details that took place within 2 Samuel 11, 2 Samuel 12. Well, this question that is asked, how could this man after God's own own heart, how could he fail so miserably, is a a question that was posed in a book that I read called How to Ruin Your Life. There's a lot of self-help books. This one was a self-destruction book. Not really. It was a great book written by Eric Geiger, which just examines David's life and examines his life and in the life of other people to see what mistakes did they make that led to failures that resulted in in horrible consequences within their lives. What we're doing in this series of studies is we're looking at choices. That there are important choices that all of us make within our lives, that our lives are built upon choices. This morning, we looked at the greatest choice, whether or not we will submit and surrender to God. What we're going to talk about this afternoon, though, is, is something concerning temptation. Temptation, the sins that we could be involved in in our lives. We understand that David made the choice to sin. We're going to look at that throughout the story. But what we're going to do at the very end is we're going to look at three things that he did that helped to aid him making that mistake. Three things that contributed to him not just making the mistake, but continuing, continuing to, to be sucked into this black hole of sin. That's what we want to talk about this afternoon together as we consider David's greatest failure here within his life. What we're talking about, of course, from 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the episode concerning David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. 2 Samuel 11 and verse 1. The Holy Scriptures of God says that in the spring, 2 Samuel 11 and verse 1, In the spring when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw one bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. And he said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers to get her. When he came, he took her for his own. What we see, this first mistake of David, this first choice that he made is that he he doesn't really make the choice to see Bathsheba. That just seems to be something that took place. But what he does is he makes the choice at this point to pursue her. And to pursue her to the point of sin this all takes place the scriptures tell us within the springtime whenever the armies of the kingdoms would go out to war and instead of David going out to the war he stays back here in Jerusalem and and being the king being in the king's palace he would have been the highest point within the city and being within the highest point of the city everything around him he would have been able to see and the scriptures tell us that as Bathsheba is out there bathing that he sees her and it is at this point that David has a choice that he could turn around And go back inside. Or he could dwell on what he was seeing. The text tells us she was very beautiful. And instead of him turning his mind. Instead of him doing it. As one preacher says. Bouncing his eyes off of her. Seeing her and bouncing away. He lingers. And this lingering leads to thoughts. These thoughts lead to questions. These questions lead to answers. And those answers lead to Bathsheba being within his palace. Now this alone this, what is taking this only in these first four verses, bad enough as it is, correct? This right here, he has already transgressed the commandments of God. He has taken a woman that is not his own wife, and not only is she not his own wife, but he, she is actually the wife of another man, a man who we're going to read in just a second is actually one of his greatest warriors. At this point, things are bad enough. He has already transgressed against God. He has sinned against God. He is in need of repentance. But what compounds the difficulties of the situation is that from this encounter with Bathsheba, she becomes pregnant. And instead of just owning up at this point, instead of David at this point just owning up to the situation, he's not willing to do so. And he makes, again, the choice to try to cover up what has taken place. We pick up in verse number 6. 2 Samuel 11, verse 6. David sent orders to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. And then he said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But instead of going home to his wife, who we would imagine a soldier being long gone at war, being a long way from his wife, that whenever he goes home to his wife, he would enjoy his wife and her company. Instead of doing that, what we see this man doing, this soldier doing, is he sleeps outside of the door of the palace. We see what he was trying to, what David was trying to do, right? He was trying to, trying to invite Uriah to come home so that, so that he might be covered up. His transgression might be covered up. And yet Uriah doesn't go along with what David's doing, unknowingly, of course. But Uriah was a man of integrity. And we learn this beginning in verse number 10, that when it was reported to David that Uriah didn't go home, David questioned Uriah, Why? How not you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Here is the integrity of Uriah. The ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and be with my wife? As surely as you live. And by your life, David, I will not do this. David again at this point is presented with a choice. It is at this point that he can give up the charade. And he could admit his mistake and he could move on. But instead, he says in verse 12, we'll, well, stay here today also. And tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then David, verse 13, invited Uriah to eat and a drink with him. And David got him drunk. And he went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants. But he did not go home. See, what we have here within the situation is a snowball effect. That the first mistake that David made with Bathsheba, in order to cover it up, because he wasn't willing to, to repent, it doesn't seem he was willing to fess up to it. Instead, what he has to do is try to cover up. It's kind of like we tell one lie. We have to tell another lie to cover that lie. We have to tell another lie to cover those lies, and so on and so forth. That's what we have within this situation. It's a snowball of wickedness and poor, not poor, wicked decision making on the part of David. That he commits this first sin and then tries to cover it up with Uriah. That doesn't work. So he gets Uriah drunk so he tries to cover it up again and that still doesn't work. At this point, David again has a choice. I can either confess what I have done and put everything out in the open or within his mind, I'm the king. I have power. I can fix this situation. Verse 14, the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, put Uriah at the front lines of the fiercest fighting. Then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. You know, this next choice that David made This portion of the mistake, to me, is the most ghastly. It, 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 to me, is the most despicable portion of this whole ordeal. And part of that stems from the disrespect that David shows here. Maybe you've you've caught this before. I don't know if I've always caught this. Maybe it was in studying for this particular lesson that I caught this for the first time. Verse 14. That David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it with Uriah. Little did Uriah know that within his hand, the letter that was being sent from his king to his commander was his own death plot. That Joab delivered the letter that would lead to his death. Verse 16 tells us that when Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. And then the men in the city came out and attacked Joab. And some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle, and Uriah the Hittite also died. So Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. And he commanded the messenger, when you finish telling the king all the details of the the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up, and he asks you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize that they would shoot from the top of the wall at Thebes, who who struck Abimelech, son of uh, Jehubathesh? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then, then, say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then the servant or the messenger left. Because by anybody's good good battle strategy, you would think that what is taking place here is horrible battle strategy. If you're trying to besiege a city and you know that there are people on top of the wall who can easily shoot down at you, Or that who can drop heavy objects down on you? Why would you attack? Why not just sit back and and wait them out? Any good military commander would say, that's the right thing to do. And Joab anticipates that. And he says, oh, just remind him that that Uriah is dead. And that's what happens. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger reported to David, the man the men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the old city gate or of the city gate however the archers shot down on your servants from the top of the wall and some of the king's servants died your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead david told the messenger verse 25 say this to Joab don't let this matter upset you because the the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. How disgraceful. How absolutely disgraceful of an attitude and a disregard for the life of his servant. One that was faithful to him do we see within David. And even worse, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband had died, she mourned for him. Verse 27, when the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. Yet what we read here at the end of verse 27 of 2 Samuel 11 is that the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. At this point, at this point as we're reading the narrative, what are we thinking? If we're reading this for the very first time, we're hot, aren't we? We are upset. We are thinking, how could David get away with such a thing? How could someone who is said to be the man after God's own heart, how could he do something so wickedly? And why would God let him get away with it? Why would God let David's evil go unchecked? Someone who should have known better. There's a chapter twelve. And in chapter twelve, in verse one, we realize that we hold David accountable. And because of David's sin, it leads to great heartbreak. So the Lord. After it being written by inspiration that what David had done was evil, the Lord in chapter twelve and verse one, second Samuel twelve and verse one, the Lord sends Nathan to David. And when he arrived he said to him, he gives him a story, this is what he shares. That there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing. Nothing at all except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. And Nathan goes on to say that he raised this little ewe lamb. And she grew up with him and with his children. And from his meager food she would eat. And from his own cup she would drink. And in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Some of us have pets, maybe dogs, cats, maybe something a little more exotic. But particularly think about dogs and cats. I think they're probably the closest that we have. Who here would be willing to confess that they treat their pet like their child? I'll raise my hand first. You don't have to, but I'll raise my hand first. I do I have two little dogs. I treat them like my children. They're my boys. I, I have two daughters. I've got to have two sons somehow, so i got two, son, two boy dogs. But we can feel to an extent how this man in the story felt. But not fully because we recognize that the only thing this man had was this ewe lamb. That he had no family. That he was not blessed greatly. And that all he had was this lamb that even shared his own provisions. It's not like he went to Petco and got some lamb food and brought it for this this lamb. No, he fed her of his own. It was like his child, a daughter. Verse 4 of 2 Samuel chapter 12 says that a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Now recognize that if we go back up to verse number 2, that he had very large flocks and herds. It wasn't that this man just, that he had this affection for his animals like the other man did. No, he had flocks and herds. He probably did not have names for them. They were numbered or some sort, I'm sure. He probably didn't know how many he had on any given day. No, he couldn't be bothered to share one of those nameless, careless animals with this traveler. No, what the text tells us is that instead he took the poor man's lamb and he he prepared that lamb for his guest. If we just read this alone, again, we're hot. We're upset at the callous. Nature, the lack of empathy, the lack of sympathy that the rich man had for the poor lamb. And you know what? David was too, wasn't he? David was hot. The text tells us that he was infuriated with the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Deserves to die for slaughtering an animal. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? I mean, they eat animals all the time. But it wasn't just the fact that it was an animal, but it was something that was precious to someone else. Verse 6 says that this was to be done because of this thing, and he has shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. He's going to pay restitution four times. Now, if we're just reading this, if we're just reading chapter 12, And we haven't read chapter 11. We don't know anything about a woman named Bathsheba. We don't know anything about Uriah the Hittite. If we don't know anything about that, we're saying David is justified, right? David is 100% justified in these feelings. We feel the same way. But there's chapter 11. And this story that is told by Nathan wasn't told just because it was an interesting story. It was told for a purpose. It was told to teach. It was told to enlighten David. Because what Nathan says to David, following David's comments about what should happen to the rich man, are the well-known four words. You are the man. David, you are the man. You are the rich man. Uriah was the poor man and you took what was precious to him which was his lawful wife. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah and if that was not enough, David, as if you needed more, I would have given you even more. Why then, 2 Samuel 12 and verse 9, have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife as your own. You murdered him with the Amorite sword. Now therefore the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes and he will be with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this to you before all of Israel in broad daylight. To David's credit, Verse number 13, he said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this manner, the son born to you will die. And then Nathan went home. If we continued reading 12, we would read about that child dying. Even though David fasted and mourned, that child certainly did pass. The lowest of low points within David's life are found here within 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. And these low points were not just happening because of of, of happenstance. No, we recognize that these things happened to David because of choices he made. He made choices that led to this outcome. What were those choices? What were some things that he did that led to this great sin? How did he fail? Three things I want to share with you as we close this study this evening. Number one first choice that David made that led to this failure is that he isolated himself. David isolated himself. I'm very convinced that all of the detail that is given to us within Scripture is given to us for a reason. I believe that the Holy Spirit inspiring the writer to to write about this taking place during the springtime, whenever the kings go out to war, that is given to us for a reason. I believe it is given to us for a reason that David stayed back in Jerusalem. Now, previous to this, in 2 Samuel 10, Joab and the armies had defeated the Amorites. We read that in chapter 10 and verse 14. But now it's time to go really go for the throats. It's time to put the foot on the throat and put down the Amorites for good by sieging the capital city of Rabbah. So Joab's gone. He's an important figure that we'll see even later on in this book. The only person that seems to be here within Jerusalem at the time that was a really trusted trusted right-hand man to David was Nathan, yet he doesn't appear until the very end of the story. I wonder how much different, or how differently this story would be if Joab was home in Jerusalem. Because what we see later on within 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel 19 and 2 Samuel chapter 24, is that Joab was somebody who was willing to stand up to David and say, David, you you need to watch yourself. You need to pump the brakes on what you're doing right now. He does this in 2 Samuel 19, He confronts David while he is mourning Absalom's death. And he tells David, listen, you're mourning the death of your son, and I get that. But you're not giving any attention. You're not showing any appreciation for the men who are loyal to you. And if you don't show them attention, if you don't show them appreciation, they're not going to be loyal to you for very much longer. David, you need to be better. He says later on, just five chapters later, chapter 24, that it was Job who tried to stop David from taking the unauthorized census. He trying to tell David, David, you don't need to do this. And yet, Joab wasn't here whenever David saw Bathsheba. It doesn't seem that he had anyone around who was willing to take a stand and said, David, she's not your wife. You have no right to her. There was no one here to say that. David isolated himself from those who would keep him on the straight and narrow. And brethren, if we make that same decision to isolate ourselves, to not allow from our good brethren who are positive influences to actually influence us, that we ought not be surprised whenever we run into the same kind of ruin. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, that's exactly what that's speaking about. It's not the the hammer verse to go to tell somebody you got to be at church. That's not what that text is about. That text is about the benefit that we get from being around brethren. Yes, we be around brethren during the assembly. Yes, of course, this is a great time to do that. But it's bigger than that. It's about any time we can be around brethren, we can be around them to be influenced, to be stirred, to be provoked to love and good works. When we are around our brethren, don't you feel more faithful often? Let's be honest. If you can be around two different groups of people, if you can be around the people of the world... Or you can be around your brethren. Which of those two situations do you feel stronger? Which of those two situations do you feel more faithful? Do you feel more spiritual? Is it not around the other hot burning coals of faith in your brethren? See if I'm a coal. When am I going to be hottest? When I'm surrounded by other coals? Or when I'm over here all by myself? It's over here isn't it? It's over here. Every single time. That's why it's so important that we spend time with our brethren. Not just in the assembly. We encourage you to spend as much time with the brethren as possible. Don't neglect the world. We are in the world. We have to be in the world. We are. Let let us try our best to influence others. But we cannot isolate ourselves from those who have the greatest positive influence on us. Because it might be that there comes a situation where Galatians 6 and verse 1 needs to be present in my life. It might be that I'm making a bad situation and someone who is spiritual comes to me and says, Nick, you need to stop. And they come to me in the spirit of gentleness and they say, Nick, you need to consider what you're doing. You're a disciple. You need to do better. We need that sometimes, don't we? David most certainly needed that. And yet he didn't have it because he had isolated himself. Good brethren, we will always be better off when we are surrounded by people like faith who are going to hold us to the high and holy standard that God has for us. Don't make the same mistake of of David. Don't isolate yourself. Choose to surround yourself with good influences. But secondly... Secondly, the second mistake that David made, the second choice that he made, is that he failed to stay busy. He failed to stay busy. Again, referencing 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, David decided to not go out to war and said he stayed in Jerusalem. And I understand that, that there might have been encouragement from his fellow soldiers, David, go rest. Rest is good sometimes. sometimes we need to rest sometimes we need to, to, to take ourselves away from situations in order to recuperate and, and gain strength. Again, maybe that's what David was doing, so we don't want to fault him too much. So if that's the case, if he was truly just trying to recuperate and gain his strength back, if that's what he was doing, he still failed to stay busy in the fact that instead of seeing, uh, instead of seeing her, and bouncing those eyes and going off to do something else to get his mind off the situation, what did he do? He lingered. David lingered in the situation. He didn't do something to get his mind off of what he had seen. He lingered on it. He dwelt on it. And because of that, he was led to sin. We've all probably heard the the phrase, idleness is the devil's workshop. Can any of us relate to that? I can I can relate to that, that whenever I have nothing going on, whenever I have nothing else preoccupying my time, then it is really easy in that moment to make poor decisions. Because that's the thing about being a disciple. is isn't just about not doing what's wrong. Brethren, it's about doing what is right. It's about being active for the Lord, doing things that are good and beneficial and helpful to those around us, and that bring glory and honor to our God. And what we see here is David not staying busy, not being productive. Instead, he allowed his mind to linger. Therefore, may we remember that each moment is precious, and that we need to use those moments well. And that's what Paul says in, in Ephesians, 5, Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Sometimes making the most of your time is spending time recuperating. Again, I'm not trying to say that. I'm not saying we need to be running 100 miles an hour all the time. What I am saying, though, is to be wise with our time. Don't give time to Satan to tempt us. Don't be caught up in boredom. Don't be caught up in frivolous pursuits. Brethren, especially don't waste our time by sinning. David found himself lingering over Bathsheba in his boredom and it led to great loss. May his poor choice keep us from making the same poor choice. And then lastly, lastly, what we see within David, the last choice that he made that really led to the culmination of all this is that he was blinded to himself and David was blinded to himself he he was not able because of everything that had been going on he was not able to recognize just how far down the black hole of sin he had gone. Because it wasn't just that this man, of, after God's own heart, had lusted. It wasn't just that he had lusted, but he had let it take him to adultery. He had not just sinned, but he allowed that sin to lead him to try to cover it up. It wasn't only that he betrayed a trusted countryman, but instead he had him killed. It wasn't just that he committed a great evil act. He, he, he did the greatest evil thing that he could possibly do taking the life of an innocent man that led to further innocent life being shed. Again, that story that Nathan told wasn't just for kicks and giggles. He didn't just share that story to pass the time. He shared that story for a purpose, for David's benefit. You would hope that whenever David hears that story, he's thinking, you know what, I'm that man. But he didn't recognize it. Instead of recognizing himself in the position of the rich man, he became infuriated. And he went after that man within his mind. He said, that man needs to be punished, and he's not recognizing that's actually me. He didn't recognize that was himself. But why? Why was this man so blinded to himself? Could it not be because his continual... Poor choices led him to that place. Brethren, whenever we continually choose self over, God, self over God, self over God, self over God, self over God, then eventually God's not even going to be in the picture. Eventually that conscience that we had once had to what God desires for us is no longer gonna be there. There's not gonna be any kind of, you know, that that kind of sticky feeling in your back. That, that dropping feeling in your stomach. That hot feeling amongst your body, you know, I shouldn't be doing this. Eventually that's not going to be there anymore. And we're going to be blinded to the fact that we are rebelling against God. And lest we look at David and rebuke him and condemn him, let us not forget 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12 that we need to take heed lest we too fall. That is what we must remember. And that's why I believe this story is here. I believe this story is here within God's holy, inspired book. Because it's supposed to teach us something. And bottom line, what it teaches us is that whenever we choose self over God, that will always lead to destruction and everything evil thing now sometimes people like David sometimes they're never punished in this life but they will be on that day on that day their punishment will be realized whenever they are separated from God for all eternity but there are a lot of times whenever our mistakes here our selfishness here it does come back to get us here Yet, let's not only consider the bad that comes from choosing self. Let's not just consider the negative consequences. Let's just consider what we're doing to God. That we're telling the God of heaven who created us. And not just the one who created us, but the one who gave his son to die for us, though we were enemies as we discussed this morning. That we're telling him in that moment, whenever we rebel against him, whenever we choose ourself, that's not good enough, God. I don't care about you. I don't care about what you've done for me. I don't care that you sent your son for me. When we choose ourselves, that's what we're doing. And the first time that might be difficult to say through our actions. But eventually it'll just be second nature. If we continue to choose self, time. And time again, we ask the question, how could the man after God's own heart fail this miserably? The answer, the answer begins with a first, I choose self. And it continues with an additional, I choose self. 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 Brethren, if David could fail, what does that say about us? Hope that you'll dwell on these things whenever you are presented with a choice, God or self. When the evil one tempts you and gives you the opportunity to choose self over God, I hope to God that you will remember David and his mistakes. And that you will allow yourself to learn from his mistakes without having to learn for yourself. Let's close with a word of prayer, please. Our most righteous Father in heaven, we are so very thankful for your word. Your word teaches us so much from the things that are recorded in it, the great victories of of your faithful people, but also times whenever they made mistakes. Lord, we are heartbroken to consider all of the, the horrible consequences of David's sin within these texts. But we are thankful, Lord, for your provision, for your giving them to us so that we can learn from him without having to suffer the same heartbreak. God, humble us, defeat us in our pride, break our stubborn spirits so that we may devote ourselves fully to you, that we may humble ourselves before your mighty throne, that we might acknowledge your son as our king. Lord, may we follow him and his will in our lives each and every day. Father, we're thankful, even beyond this, for the ability to ask for repentance when we do fail. Help us to be like David, to to humble ourselves and to admit that we have sinned. And may we go on from that place being better for you. Lord, we, we pray this because we want to honor you. We recognize what you have done for us, and we only want to honor you for that. We only want to bring glory to your name. Help us as we're in this world to overcome the evil one and his horrible temptations. These things we ask to you in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen.